Well, why don't you take your Bibles and turn them to Mark chapter 4 this morning. Mark chapter 4, beginning a new chapter. And I'm not sure if you've noticed, but it seems that even the non-religious are fascinated by the teachings of Jesus. I think because he was able to take these very common illustrations from everyday life and turn them into some of the most profound statements ever. And I know that myself as a teacher, I can really appreciate this. From Jesus, we learn about wheat and tares, weeds and seeds, flowers, trees, fruit, birds, fish, sheep, lost sheep, goats. We learn about cooking and leaven, doors and doorkeepers, masters, servants and neighbors, sons, judges, builders, debtors, thieves, brides, bridegrooms and wedding attendants. Jesus talks about lamps, clouds, salt, wineskins, pearls, towers, and even a farmer going out to sow. Of course, when Jesus teaches like this, he's not just trying to make us better farmers. There is a deeper meaning to his words. Anyone can get the the surface illustration. But the truth that lies beneath takes some effort to discern. And that's that's our aim here in Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapters 3 and 4, we encounter some, some watershed passages some really landmark events in the life of Jesus. We just finished Mark chapter 3, where after a year of ministry, the religious leaders have come to, to really peak in their opposition of Jesus. They commit the unpardonable sin, blasting the Holy Spirit. They actually accuse him of being possessed by the devil and casting out demons by the ruler of demons. They've just reached the, the level of, the, the height of hard-heartedness. And things are different after this. They're different for Jesus. They're different for Israel. This was a turning point. They have rejected Jesus already, and so he rejects them. We see Jesus turn away from the religious leaders at this point, and to a large degree, even the crowd. And it's no coincidence that after this point, Jesus begins to teach in parables. Now, most of his teaching to the crowds, especially concerning the kingdom, comes in the form of parables. And it's not an accident. What is a parable? A parable is a short, true-to-life story that communicates some spiritual truth. In Sunday school, we would say they're earthly stories with heavenly realities. Parables are like metaphors or analogies, but they're more profound. And Jesus uses them to actually tell us his view on God and man and sin and salvation and the kingdom The kicker is that parables, without an explanation or eyes to see, become riddles. Parables have this sifting function. They sift true disciples from the false, insiders from outsiders, wheat from tares. Parables have the ability to both reveal truth and conceal truth at the same time. To those who know God, who seek the truth, who are humble and submit themselves to the Lord, Parables reveal a great deal about God and his kingdom. But to those who do not know God, do not seek God, are prideful and hardened in their sin, parables conceal deeper truths about God from them. So right after his public rejection by the spiritual leaders of Israel, Jesus begins to teach in parables so as to both reveal and conceal the truth of the kingdom from his true and false disciples, respectively. 
Now, Mark, in his gospel, doesn't usually include the lengthy sermons or discourses of Jesus, but he devotes almost the entire chapter, we call Mark chapter 4, to this teaching ministry of Jesus in parables. Because this is, this is an important moment in, in the life and ministry of Jesus. First up to bat is the, the famous parable of the sower or parable of the soils. And just reading this, you can tell that there's more going on here than meets the eye. Jesus himself reveals that there is a layer of truth purposely hidden under this parable. And as we open up to Mark chapter 4 now, we want to this morning make sure that we don't miss this. After an afternoon of teaching the crowd in parables, Jesus dismisses the crowd and he goes into a house. He's followed by the twelve as well as some other disciples. And when Jesus was alone, they asked him some questions about these parables. Even they could discern that there's more going on here with this teaching. So, so what's the deal? The disciples had two questions for Jesus that day, and they just so happened to be the same questions we want to ask as well. Question number one, they ask him, what do these parables mean? Even the faithful needed an explanation. And in particular, they ask him, what does the parable of the sower mean? Secondly, they ask him, why is he teaching the crowds in parables at all? Why parables in the first place? And Jesus responds to both of these questions with a full dose of truth in concentrated form. It's strong. And what he says, in fact, is so strong, it just may be hard for some to accept. But that's kind of the point. As Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But that's not going to be everyone. Our goal is to study this parable in two passes. It's like an onion. We're dealing with layers here. And this morning we want to approach the first layer, the outer layer, the surface of this parable. And we want to ask that first question that the disciples asked, what does this mean? What does the parable of the sower or the soils mean? What is Jesus teaching here? He's revealing some truth about the kingdom of God. It's relevant then and now, so we want to, we want to find that out. Next week, we're actually going to come back and take a second pass over these same verses in order to answer the second question the disciples had. Okay, well, why is Jesus teaching parables at all? What's the point of this? To the people, these parables are like riddles. So shouldn't Jesus try and be clearer in his teaching? Doesn't he want people to understand what he's trying to say? Or is Jesus actually trying to hide the truth of the kingdom from certain people? Could that be? Well, we'll answer those questions next week. It will require some subterranean digging. We'll get there next week. For now, we turn our attention to Mark chapter 4. Next week's lesson will be a a meaty meal, but we have enough to to feast on this morning. We're looking at 20 verses, Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. And we're just going to go through and, and really very simply look at the parable of the soils told, the parable of the soils explained, and the parable of the soils applied. Very simple, the parable of the soils told, explained, and applied. And we begin with this, number one, the parable of the soils told. I'm just going to go through these verses and, and hear the parable as Jesus teaches. So turn your attention to verse 1 of Mark chapter 4. 
he, Jesus, began to teach again by the sea. And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. Now stop there for a second. We, we find some familiar territory for the Gospel of Mark, for Jesus. We, we often see Jesus retreating to the shore of Galilee to teach. And Matthew chapter 13, verse 1 makes clear this all happens on the same day. It's called his busy day in Capernaum. From his family coming to visit him and, and take him away, to the Pharisees claiming he's possessed by the devil, to this teaching in parables. It's all the same day. And so later in the afternoon, he's teaching by the shore. Immediately a crowd gathers. And before, we've seen Jesus draw some large crowds. This is the first time Mark says it's a very large crowd, upwards of 10,000 people could have been there. We knew he had some very big numbers. This time he gets into the boat, both to keep the crowd from pressing in on him too much, and also it's like a floating pulpit. And from the boat, he sits down and he teaches. And today we, we think we know where this took place on the Sea of Galilee, or at least some do. It's called Today it's called the Bay of Parables. It's a place in Galilee, just less than a mile away from Capernaum, where the, the shoreline rises very rapidly from the water. It forms this, this like natural amphitheater. And they've done some studies where the voice of one person from the shore, as if the waves carry it, it just fills this space and it can be heard very far away, very easily. And on this day, Jesus sat down again to teach. But this time, out of his mouth came something a little bit new. He started to speak in parables. He says in verse 3, Listen to this. Behold. In other words, he's saying, Pay attention to what I'm about to say. Listen up. Several times in this chapter, Jesus admonishes the crowd to listen, to hear. And he's not just talking about words entering your mind. He's already cluing us in. There's something more going on here. There's something under the surface to what he's about to say. Verse 3, listen to this, behold, the sower went out to sow. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all agree that the first parable Jesus taught on this day was the parable of the sower, or the soils. This lesson comes in the form of a story about a man, a sower, going out into his field to sow some seed. As a side note, I think why his teaching, Christ's teaching, is so captivating is because you don't need a seminary degree to understand this stuff. You don't need a special vocabulary or or a special knowledge. Everyone in the crowd would have immediately picked up on this illustration and knew exactly what he was talking about, at least on the surface. The same can be said today. We want to take it further. The sower goes out to sow. Typically back then, a sower wore a leather seed bag on his waist and he would just scatter by hand wheat seed, barley seed. His field was not often very large or very processed like today's mega farms we see just even locally. Most of these farms were small, unfenced plots. Sometimes they plowed beforehand, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they would come back later and just drive the seed into the ground with a stick. Roads at the edge of the field were common, as were paths running through it. 
any place that had frequent foot traffic that the ground would just be stomped down and nothing would grow there. And so we expect verse 4. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. The earth was so tough and hard on these roads that any seed would just just sit there, sit on the surface. And being exposed, they'd be easy prey for passing birds overhead. And so these seeds would be the first to go. They wouldn't make it, the seed on the road. But there's more. Look at verse 5. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. Now, even for us relatively city folk, this makes sense. We can understand what he's saying here. But don't picture a rock-covered field like a rock garden. Really, the picture is of a, a shallow layer of soil with solid rock underneath it, like limestone or something like that. The seed that falls on this shallow soil quickly germinates and a little sprout shoots up in this warm bed. It's got nowhere to go but up. But this is a problem because when the sun heats up and the soil dries out, this little plant lacking deep roots can't draw on the moisture from below. So without this this depth and the root system, it, it just dries up and it won't be long before this little plant dies. There's some more seed, verse 7. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Here we have the next uh, illustration of seed being sown. And I have to say, growing up in Los Angeles, not very far from the famed Disneyland, when I read this, it always makes me think of Br'er Rabbit and his briar patch. And if you've ever read on on Splash Mountain, you know what I'm talking about. It's a picture of this little rabbit just surrounded by this dense forest of thorns and thistles. And you wouldn't expect any good crop to grow there. Weeds and thorns grow so much better than all the plants that we want to grow, just for some reason. And when they're next to good plants, they really outgrow and outpace them. Their roots go deeper, their leaves reach further, and the good plant next to them, it's deprived of the, of the light and the moisture that it needs. It's choked out, choked of energy. It yields no crop. And when you're sowing wheat, by the way, that, that's what you're after. You're after a harvest. You're not sowing it just for looks. You want the, the fruit, the harvest. And with thorns, you don't get that. This seed does not bear fruit. So far, it doesn't sound very good for the seed, but there is some good news in the parable. Look at verse 8. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100-fold. As you can already tell, there's plenty of obstacles to farming and to sowing. But when good soil is found, there is a harvest to be had. Three verbs paint this explosive growth of the seed. He says they grew up, they increased, and they yielded this great crop. And the harvest was astounding. A 30-fold increase in Palestine was not unheard of, but it was pretty rare. If you had that much of a return, 
you would definitely see it as a, a sign of divine blessing. Typically, a farmer would expect about a sevenfold return based on number of seeds sown. So Jesus ends this parable telling of a truly amazing harvest. When this seed found some good soil, the harvest was extraordinary. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some even 100-fold, which was pretty unheard of. A farmer would be just elated over this. It was starting to get discouraging hearing about all that seed not bear fruit. But the parable ends with a great harvest and a great outcome. The seed produces in the end. So that's it. There you have it. That's the parable of the soils. It's pretty simple. seems pretty straightforward on the surface. It's entertaining. It's intriguing. It's captivating. I'm sure the original audience was very amused by the parable. But Jesus signals that there's more going on in verse 9. After finishing the parable, verse 9, he was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And you, you read that, you're thinking, well, well, what? I mean, let him hear what? You have, you're going to talk about more seeds or birds or thorns or, or soil. What more is there? Aren't you done? Didn't you just finish? What, what more do I have to hear? You see, Jesus, he was finished with this parable. But there is more to the story. Because his words, his illustrations, like the seed on the good soil, they go beneath the surface. They reach down pretty deep. And that brings us to, secondly now, the parable of the soils explained. We want to peek under the surface here. And, and what, what is he saying? What does he mean by this? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hear what? What's he saying? Well, let's look at, secondly, the parable of the soils explained. On this afternoon, Jesus kept teaching in parables. And many famous ones from this little boat, he presented the parable of the tares and the wheat, the mustard seed, the leaven, the pearl of great price, the dragnet, which is a perfect fishing illustration as he's on this little fishing boat, presumably. But after this, at some point, Jesus dismissed this crowd and he went away into a house. And if he was in Capernaum, most likely this is Peter's house. It's been there before. But the 12 disciples follow him inside and some other disciples go as well. And when they get Jesus alone, they've, they've got some questions because even the disciples have not really heard Jesus teach like this before, in parables so much. They're caught off guard. And they want to know, well, what does this mean? Luke chapter 8, verse 9, they specifically ask him, tell us about the parable of the soils. What, what, what does that mean? Without explanation, parables can easily become an enigma. They can confuse. You don't understand. But Jesus explains, and Mark, before he talks about the other parables, he fast-forwards us to this explanation of the parable of the soil. So let's, let's begin looking at this explanation now. And he starts in verse 14. We'll come back and look at 10 through 13 next week. But starting at verse 14, he explains, and he says, The sower sows the word. The first element Jesus explains is the seed. What is the seed? And it is the word. 
or as Matthew and Luke add, the, the word of, of God, the word of the kingdom of God. Scripture uses a few key terms like the word or the gospel to encapsulate the entire message of God, his kingdom, his son, salvation. And this word, this gospel, it's, it's a message. It's a message of truth, a message of hope, a message of salvation. And to be saved, you have to receive this message and believe it. You have to believe it. But to be But to be believed, the message must be heard. To be heard, the message must be preached. And hence the need for a sower to sow the seed, to preach the word. The sower, he says, sows the word. Notice, though, Jesus doesn't identify the sower. Who's the sower? He doesn't say. He's only identified by his function, the sower, is the one who sows the word. Ultimately, though, Jesus is the sower. He's the Savior who has come to earth, and his mission in part was to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. We've already seen him do this. He's already been scattering the seed of God's word, and he will continue to do so. Relatedly, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, in that parable, Jesus specifically identifies himself as the sower there and the same stands here however i will say this in this parable of the soils jesus he's revealing truth about the kingdom of god that is that characterizes this entire age jesus is the the chief sower of the word but in a real sense any time any believer shares the gospel they're functioning like a sower they're sowing the word and so that's also valid, and, and he or she can expect these same responses. The response comes in the form of the soil. The seed finds four different types of soil to rest on, and it's very clear what this soil represents. The four soils represent humans, or, or better yet, human hearts, heart conditions. Matthew and Luke, in fact, explicitly draw the connection between the soils and the heart. The four soils represent four different heart conditions. And from them we learn the typical response to the word of the kingdom in this age. So let's spend more time with these these responses now. It's the real focus of the parable. He doesn't talk much about the seed or the sower. He talks about the soils. So first we find the hard heart. These four soils representing four hearts. The first is the hard heart. And he explains this in verse 15. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. There are two reasons why this seed doesn't bear fruit. The first is the hardened soil. Every now and then, I go mountain biking up in the hills of San Luis Obispo, and the great trails, and even in springtime, in the midst of this lush, you know, the, all the plants are coming back to life, the lush field, nothing ever grows on the trail, ever. And why is that? Well, because daily, hundreds of hikers and runners and moms with strollers and horseback riders and mountain bikers 
come and they trample that earth and they compact it about as hard as rock and nothing's going to grow there. And the same thing happens to people. Their hearts become as hard as stone and nothing gets through. You might wonder, how does this happen to a person? How do they get like this? Well, it takes time. And usually over the course of their life, their, their long-time habits of sin take their toll. And through them, this person kills their conscience. Romans chapter 1 gives us some insight into the hardening of a person's heart. You see, in Romans 1, Paul explains how people, they know God and his will in their heart. God gave to all people a functioning conscience to, to know right from wrong. And God revealed himself to everyone in their hearts. They're without excuse. But all people being born sinners exchange truth for a lie. They deny God and they choose their sin. But here's the problem. You know, sin brings this really annoying guilt. It's really like a buzzkill. And so the flesh wanting to satisfy its, its sinful urges wants to get rid of this nagging guilt. And how do you do that? Well, you do that by killing the conscience. You have to suppress those feelings of wrongdoing. If you do it long enough, it works. A callus starts to form over your heart where you can actually do wrong, but it doesn't feel bad anymore. Like an egg, a hard shell has encased your heart, and now nothing of God gets through. No conviction, no truth, no guilt, not the word. It's like a seed on concrete will never germinate, will never bear fruit. However, God's word is so powerful, it's like a seed that can punch through concrete. People hardened in sin can be saved, and the power for them is in the seed, in the word. Like Romans 1, 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. For everyone. God's word is so powerful, it's like the seed that can burst through the concrete. The power is in the seed. This is something we know. But Satan knows this as well. Satan and all evil spiritual forces know that if the seed is left long enough on the hardened soil, it might eventually break through. And they don't want that to happen. So like birds, Satan and demon are, are pictured as removing the word from such people's hearts. This is the second problem. These people are already hardened in sin. And in all likelihood, the seed will not take root. But to remove all possibility, Satan and demons work to get rid of the seed for good. How do they do this? Through the power of suggestion, persuasion, distraction, and more. We don't have eyes to see this spiritual warfare taking place. But the point of this first soil is to explain that some people reject because their hearts are hardened and because spiritual forces are at work to keep them from knowing the gospel and being saved. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. There is a real, hidden spiritual warfare going on. The battle is over human hearts. And the enemy is working and has some role to play in the seed not bearing fruit. 
Now, there is a lot more to say about the spiritual dimension, the hidden, unseen, behind-the-scenes work of the seed and this struggle. We'll come back and we'll, we'll really study that next week. We want to keep moving and we want to look at, secondly, the shallow heart. The second type of soil typifies a shallow heart. We see this explained now in verses 16 and 17. Verse 16. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. This is the shallow heart. You could call this the impulsive heart. These people are driven and ruled by emotions. When they hear the good news, immediately they receive it with joy. They're so excited now they're a Christian. They know God. This is great. But as soon as the going gets tough, immediately they're out of there. Twice it says immediately. Immediately they believe. Immediately they leave. They have no root. Their profession of faith was not genuine, but it was motivated by some perceived, felt need. Here's the deal. Salvation is free. You know that? But at the same time, it costs you everything. It costs you your entire life. You have to die to yourself, to your old self. But such a person was not aware of this cost. They did not count the cost. When it came time to pay, they decided to just cash out. Remember, Jesus said, before he said, follow me, he said, deny yourself and pick up your cross. Then follow me. The cross comes before the crown, tribulation before triumph. A slave is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted Jesus, you can expect the same. True disciples are willing to accept this because we're not living for ourselves anymore, but for him. To those who still live for their selves, who desire to preserve their selves above all else, they're, they're not going to trade their life for Christ's. They will not give up the life they want to live for the Lord. So when that persecution comes, they're, they're out of here. They perfectly exemplify what Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 25. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Sadly, I think we all know people like this. They professed faith in Christ, not out of the depth of their heart, but out of the heat of emotion. Maybe they were at a Christian camp or a concert or a church service and emotions were running high. Loud music shook them. Lights dazzled them. Maybe even a sermon moved them. And when they heard that word, it was great. They received it with joy. Isn't this wonderful? There's no peer pressure. All these people are Christians. It's all nice and rosy. It's a fun time. So they received it with joy. They prayed that sinner's prayer. They went up for that altar call. They signed that letter certificate. And now, now they're saved. And look, they've got a certificate. It proves that back in 92, I was saved. I have, it's signed. I have a certificate. And they think it's all good. 
But then the next week, they return to school or work or life. Things aren't so great. The trials, they don't go away. Sickness doesn't go away. Now there's affliction and persecution. This isn't what they signed up for. It's not fun. This doesn't really please them. They learn that this whole Christianity thing requires self-denial, self-sacrifice. It's not what they signed up for. So they fall away. The worst part, however, is that today, many of these people still cling to the title of Christian even though they practically have nothing to do with the faith. And this is how you get 80% of Americans still associating themselves as Christians. That's the only way you get that number. But just wait. Just wait until confessing Christ comes with the risk of your life again. When coming to church means your license plate gets recorded and your life is threatened. And then we'll see who's still calling themselves a Christian. But for now, understand this from the second soil. True discipleship requires self-denial and depth of soil. Thirdly, there's a divided heart. Divided heart from verses 18 and 19. He says, And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. If the shallow heart corresponds to the need to deny self and pick up your cross, then this divided heart corresponds to the need to follow Jesus and only Jesus. Jesus said you have to follow him. All true disciples will do this. Only Jesus presents this as an all or nothing proposition. You don't follow him 50% or 99%. Either you follow him all the way with all your heart or you're not following. Either you commit to giving him your entire life or, or you don't. But Jesus requires a very radical level of commitment. doesn't mean you're perfect, but a, a radical commitment. It's like the man whom Jesus called to follow him, and the man responded, Lord, permit me to go first and bury my father. Remember what Jesus said back to him? He said, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. It's like, what? It's kind of harsh. And give the guy a break. His, his father just died. Can he go bury him? But catch the lesson that Jesus was giving in that statement. If you let anything get in the way of following Jesus, you will never follow Jesus because there will always be something else to get in the way. You catch that? If you let anything get in the way of following Jesus, you will never follow because there will always be something else to get in the way. Some people say, I'll, I'll follow Jesus when I graduate from college. You know, I'm, a, I'm an adult. Or I'll, I'll, follow, I'll start following when I get married, set all my roots. Or I'll, I'll get really serious when my career is off the ground and I have kids. Because then you've got to get serious, right? Or it becomes, well, once I get a house. Or after I retire, then I'll do the whole you know, Christianity thing. There's always going to be something. Such a person is not a true disciple. Their devotion is divided. They're choked. They're unfruitful. And that's the whole point. Jesus gives three main categories of distractions to our souls, the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things. 
It's just everything those in the world are consumed by. These worries of the world, they're not always bad. Where am I going to live? Where am I going to work? Not always bad, but they often become consuming worries. Primarily, those in the world are worried about money, which he highlights. They're driven by their desire for wealth. Thinking in wealth, they have the ultimate security. If I'm rich, I wouldn't have to worry so much because money seems to solve all my problems. But he says the deceitfulness of riches because money doesn't solve any of your real problems. can't buy you lasting happiness or health, and it certainly can't save you. But for many in the world, they use money as a means to another end. He says the desire for other things. It's always something more they want to fill that hole inside of them. And that's the real problem. God is not the center of their life. It's just stuff, something else. God is missing from this person's life. Like Jesus said to Martha, they are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. Being Christ's disciple means sitting at his feet, devoted to him, attentively, not distracted by so many other things. The heart that is so distracted, so focused on what's before them, will never be satisfied, and even worse, they will miss eternity and what lies beyond the worries of this world. They're choked, they're unfruitful. Thankfully, this is not the last word. There's a fourth type of soil representing, fourthly now, the good heart. The good heart. From the hard heart to the shallow heart, the divided heart, finally the good heart, and look at verse 20. And those are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30, 60, and 100-fold. The fourth type of soil is the good heart. Really, there are three categories of this soil matching the three categories of bad soil, some that bears 30, 60, 100-fold. But even, oh, even though they are different in their fruitfulness, they're all good. They're all good soil. What makes this soil good? Next week, we're really going to peek behind the curtain and see God's hand in all of this. And we'll learn that God must till the hearts, or rather the soil of our hearts, if we are to receive and be saved. But from a human perspective, good soil is identified by bearing fruit. And notice the three-step process in verse 20. What makes it good? Such a person hears the word and accepts it and then bears fruit. That's good soil. As the word of God is presented to them, they're not hardened against it, but they receive it wholeheartedly. Their acceptance is not shallow, but it's from the very depth of their soul. And their commitment is not divided. It's pure. It's focused. To some, it's everything a true disciple should be. A true disciple will, by definition, bear fruit. You're not saved by works. You're not saved by fruit, doing what God wants. But it's the guaranteed outcome of a new birth. It's the essential evidence of one who is a true disciple every time. This is why Jesus can say in Matthew 7:17, every good tree will bear good fruit. Not, not half, not three quarters. Every good tree will bear good fruit. 
Or look at this, John chapter 17 verse, or John chapter 15 verse 8. He said, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's it right there. The good disciple, the good soil, is the one who bears much fruit. And this is it. This is the parable of the soils. That's it. That's all he says. I prefer to call it the parable of the soils over the parable of the sower because it's really a tale of four soils representing four hearts and their different responses to the word of God. I said earlier, this parable, it's like an onion, has many layers. And so far, this, this is actually just the surface, the parable told, the parable explained by Jesus. With a little bit of time we have left, though, we want to peek, just get a glimpse of what lies beneath though, before we see it in detail next week. So let's do this with our remaining time. The parable of the soils applied. The parable of the soils applied. What is this really about? What is Jesus telling us here? Some want to make it all about evangelism. Some want to make it all about personal examination. First and foremost, though, we don't want to miss the main point of this parable in its historical context. In the life and ministry of Jesus, the primary application, if we call it that, is really just an explanation. It's an explanation. The parable of the soils explains and reveals what's happening in the ministry of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Think about this. What were the Jews hoping for and longing for? The kingdom. The kingdom of God. It would be magnificent and glorious and big. And the Messiah would be reigning over the nations and Israel would be at the center. But they emphasized the earthly dimensions of the kingdom so much that they missed the spiritual dimensions of the kingdom, which actually takes precedence and comes first. So here comes Jesus. Is Jesus the king? Yes. Does he preach the kingdom? Yes. Does he display kingdom power? Yes, the kingdom is present in Jesus, and with each miracle, he displays kingdom power. But as they look at Jesus, they ask, okay, well, where's the kingdom? Where's the fanfare? Where's the army? Where's the world domination? And if Jesus really is the king, how on earth could the religious leaders reject him so much? How do you explain that? Would, would they really get it wrong? Remember what happened right before this. The Pharisees, the leader of Israel, peaked in their rejection of Jesus. How do you explain that? If he's the king of the kingdom, would they really be rejecting him? And then you have the crowds. They were so fickle. Why aren't more people following? Why, why do so many fall away from following him? What's going on? And so bottom line, to the average Jew... Looking at Jesus and his works, it was amazing, but this isn't really the kingdom or the king they were expecting. They were looking for a little bit more, you know, someone to conquer Rome. So that's the situation at the time. What does this have to do with the parable of the soils? Well, in this, Jesus is explaining what is going on with the kingdom. So many of them had such a wrong view of the kingdom, he sets them straight. That's the primary function of all the parables. And here he's explaining that the kingdom will come with resistance, with opposition. 
It will not be accepted by all at first. They were not prepared for this. Forces are at work with the, which oppose this kingdom. Birds, scorching heat, thorns. They all stifle the seed. This is to be expected though, he says. Because as Jesus reveals, the kingdom will first be met with opposition. Both then and throughout the age. But there's no stopping the harvest. There's no stopping the harvest. That which opposes the sower and his seed will not have the last word. Even as Jesus later reveals that he, Israel's messianic king, must be killed by his own people, there will still be a harvest. I mean, just think about that. For them, that, that's crazy. The king is going to be killed. That's not the, the king we were expecting. How is this the kingdom? But this is why Jesus explains to them these mysteries of the kingdom. If, if only they have ears to hear, they would know it all. So the primary application, if we want to call it that, really comes by way of explanation. The parable is an explanation of the different attitudes and responses to the kingdom. It is an explanation of why Jesus is being met with so much rejection. In the end, though, there will be a harvest. God's word will not return to him void. This is something we want to get straight and we'll actually revisit this explanation of the parable next week. Well, there is a lot more to say about the parable of the soils. Evangelism, personal examination, legitimate applications. There is an even deeper layer about God's working behind the scenes. What is God doing in this parable and through Jesus teaching in parables Is he actually trying to keep the truth from certain people? And what do we make of this? There's a lot more to be said here, a lot more we want to consider and even apply. And so come back next week, and we'll finish the parable of the soils. For now, let's pray. Father in heaven, we we bow before you and we thank you for your word. We know that your word is truth and your word is clear. To those who have eyes to see, it it speaks the truth clearly to us, Lord. At the same time, your word can be, it is so deep that to plumb the depths would would take forever. It is simple enough for a child to understand, yet it is so profound. We could spend our entire lives and we wouldn't reach the bottom. That's just to the praise of your glory. That just shows the riches of your wisdom and knowledge, Lord. We, We praise you for that and we pray that over time you expose us to more and more of your truth. We don't want to be those who are blinded. And so we come before you in the required humility. We just bow before your word. We, We submit what it says, we accept. We will submit to your word. We cherish it. And we just pray you give us those eyes to see and ears to hear, that we may heed your word and be like the seed on the good soil to bear fruit. We thank you for this word. We pray even now we can... Reflect on our own hearts. How have we responded to your word? Have we turned a hard heart against it? Have we fallen away from it? Are we so distracted we give it no time? Or do we devote ourselves to the word, to the word giver, and bear much fruit? You saved us not by works, but by grace. Yet you want us to bear fruit. In this you are greatly pleased. So I pray we leave from here thinking, considering, 
how we can indeed bear more fruit for you, strive to please you in all, in all of our ways, and give you glory. Thank you for our time. In your name we pray. Amen.